with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Today it's my deep pleasure to speak with Yaqub ibn Yusuf, a Sufi, mystic, and proprietor of Olam Katan Bookstore on Emek Rafaim in Jerusalem. Yaqub, hi. Hi. It's a pleasure to be interviewing you, and I'd love to start by asking you about 1970. So, you're, uh, you've just dropped out of New York University. Mm-hmm. to join the revolution? Pretty much, yes. I, uh, I thought I'd go study uh, world religion, but it was academic and it wasn't really what I was looking for. And, um, oh, I, I wrote poetry back in those days. Now I translate other people or polish other people's poems. But uh, in those days I wrote my own. And there's only one poem I remember from those days. It goes like this. Hey kids, drop out if you believe in it. I believe in it. Don't chicken out. And stop eating chickens, too. <laughs> I did stop eating chickens until years later when I was with my uh, Sufi master in uh, the Mount of Olives in East Jerusalem. And, uh, but that's another story. Uh, he said, all the prophets eat meat. Are you better than the prophets? And I figured what Judaism and Islam agree on, like meat eating, I didn't really have the strength to oppose anymore. So I gave up being vegetarian at that point. But that's jumping ahead in the story. I hitchhiked around, visited friends uh, on the East Coast and their various college campuses, and uh, then finally got it together to hitchhike, hitchhike out to the West Coast. On the way, I stopped, actually, in Winnipeg, first in Hibbing, Minnesota, to visit the birthplace of Bob Dylan. And uh, it was in the winter. His cousin, Paul Zimmerman, who was the Zimmerman in the phone book, said, Oh, yeah, we still get a call every now and then, mostly in the summer, though. Uh... It was cold, and I made my way up to Winnipeg, Manitoba, to meet the man behind the myth, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi. At that point, my dream was starting a Jewish theater in a, in a radical Jewish theater in a school bus that would travel around. Never happened. Zalman asked me if I was interested in studying Kabbalah, and at that point I wasn't, but I appreciated being asked. Uh, that took a few years to come, come around. And I was uh, basically between the two coasts for a couple of years. I'd go out to the West Coast, San Francisco, uh, kind of learning to be a hippie. And uh, at that point, things had gone from psychedelic drugs to hard drugs to spiritual practice. It was a good moment to get there for the spiritual practice, not for the hard drugs. Um, I was introduced to psychedelics there as well, but uh, I hung out. Everybody was following their gurus, and... I didn't have a guru, but I had a religion. I still loved Judaism. I had in my, my little backpack, I had a copy of the Chinese I Ching and the Hebrew prayer book. So um, I was into praying, and uh, I very much liked what was going on at the House of Love and Prayer, the Shlomo Karl Bach community there, and learned from those folks how to cook in a wok, how to do, you know, 
Chinese stir fry. Uh, we do yoga as long with, along with Jewish prayer. I thought they had a wonderful uh, synthesis of Judaism and hippie culture. But when I wanted to ask them about that, like how do you choose what you keep from Jewish tradition and what you let go of, they were sort of in shock. No, 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 no. We're Chazurim B'Tshuva. We're we're newly religious. I said, guys, you're much more creative than that. Come on, give me a break. They didn't want to hear that. I grew up at a Shabbos table. My parents were people who loved the question, how do we adapt Judaism for our times? What do we keep? What do we let go of? And I was raised on that question. But the folks in San Francisco didn't want to talk about it, although they were doing it beautifully. Back in the East Coast, I'd hang out at the Chavura, where people were very engaged in talking about it and also doing it. But they were all grad students, and I was a college dropout. I, I tried working at the Sierra Bread Factory for a while in Cambridge. I drove a cab for a while in Manhattan, but I didn't find my place on either coast. And I was corresponding with Reb Zalman by cassette tape. Zalman's always been into the new technology. He was onto Skype before I ever heard of it. In recent years, you know, before he passed away a couple years ago, he said, you want to be in touch with me, go on Skype. What, what Skype? And eventually I found out. But in those days, we're talking the early 70s, we sent a cassette back and forth by snail mail, as we call it, by real mail service. It took a while, but uh, we made somewhere among, I've been keeping my cassettes because somewhere is buried that cassette of our conversation. And I asked Zalman, I asked him this question. I said, Zalman, is God Jewish or is God Godish? Because like, if God is like Elu Jewish, you know, what's, what about the Goyim? Does everybody lose out but the Jewish people? Are we the only ones who have the truth? Like, what's, come on, how does that work? And if God is Godish, that is to say generic, you know, divine, but I didn't say divine, I said if God is Godish, if God is Godish, then what's all this Jewish stuff about? And Zalman did not resent the question, he welcomed the question. He said, my sense is God is, as you say, Godish. Uh, but God is also, we learned from Marshall McLuhan, who was another creative professor in Canada in those days, the guy who crystallized the term media and media studies. Um, God is also a verb, says Marshall McLuhan. So Zalman went on, to say, went on to say, I God Jewishly. So he caught my interest. I was interested in Godding Jewishly, so to speak. Uh, I was interested in other things. I was already doing some Hatha Yoga. Um, not much more than that. Um, so he invited me to be part of something like an ashram where we would be focused on God, on realizing God. But uh, instead of nectar, we would do it with schmaltz. In other words, Jewish style primarily, rather than Hindu style or some other style. Okay, I was a vegetarian, so schmaltz wasn't really a turn-on for me, but I got the general idea and it sounded right. And after hesitating a bit, I decided to move up to Winnipeg, Canada and be with Reb Zalman, which in terms of the compass, the four directions, kind of a Native American sense of things, was the north point, uh, going from the east and the west extremes to the north point. Um, for inner vision, for spiritual vision makes sense. Um, and uh, he had a precondition, which is that I register for college. I almost didn't go because I didn't want to. But then I realized I was miss, I was going to miss out on a great thing. He gave a course in psychology of religion with labs. And uh, we'd go into a chapel, and he'd burn incense, and he'd play some kind of spiritual music and blindfold us, and we'd experience sacred space with our other senses. 
and also kind of touch each other. It was very juicy. Um, I also remember one of our exercises. He took one of Psalms of the Psalms in English. All the men were in the one line. All the women in another line. Everyone had a partner. Of course, in those days, nobody dreamt of homosexuality. It was heterosexuality it was taken for granted, which worked fine for me. So everybody's got their partner of the opposite sex, and you scan the particular line of Psalms, and then you don't look at the book. You look at your partner, and they're the face of God, and you recite that line of Psalms to them, looking them in the eyes, and then they recite their line, looking at you, and it was tantra. It was tantra with Psalms. It was powerful. But great stuff happened in that class. We had to go, go do church reports, go to different kind of churches, synagogues, other houses of worship, as much as we had in Winnipeg those days. Put all your critical faculties aside, experience what's going on there, then come back, bring your critical faculties to bear, and write a lab report of your church visit or the labs that we did. And it was, the course was great. I had friends for years who came out of that. Tai Chi teacher who studied in, in Taiwan, friends deeply into Native American spirituality. I had all kinds of friends came out of that class. And uh, there was a close inner circle around Zalman. Uh, and Zalman put out all kinds of primarily Jewish food on the table. He was always translating from one tradition to another, as if we all knew about yoga and Buddhism and Christian mysticism, which I didn't know a thing about, uh, and transpersonal psychology. Um, but the translations worked both ways. So I was learning about all these other things and also about Jewish mysticism. I had a pretty good background in Judaism. But of all the spiritual food he put on the table, what most spoke to me were the teachings of Reb Nachman. That's where I saw my, the universal vision of spirituality that I was looking for, that I wanted to be loyal to, that I understood was where it's at, in a uniquely Jewish, unmistakably Jewish expression. That's where I saw Jewish and universal come together. And what I found at the core of Reb Nachman's vision wasn't the Torah as a super code, wasn't Hebrew letters and their, their, their numerical meaning or whatever, that kind of thing, code thing. It wasn't about that. It was about a figure, the figure of the tzaddik, the spiritual master, the master of the field, Reb Nachman calls it in one of his teachings. And I understood, he talked about the quality of Moses and I understood that this was something embodied by certain people in every generation. This archetype of the tzaddik, and Zaman used that term, the archetype of the tzaddik, I got it from him. But as well as being embodied by certain people who deeply, really lived this and were this channel between heaven and earth, between the divine and, and our, our human life, uh, it was also a potential, an archetype in the sense of a potential within every person. And that deeply spoke to me. I said, oh, so this guru idea is at the basis of Judaism, not only of Eastern religions, okay. Um, where do I find one? Now, I had been around Shlomo Karabach in the House of Love and Prayer, and he was too kitschy, he was too sweet for me. You know, I was macrobiotic or thought I should be, and he's always sweet like sugar, it didn't quite fit for me. Um, I loved his music and I liked his students, but and later with Zalman, actually, I went through the exercise of transcribing one of Shlomo's teachings and looking up all the references, all the, the teachings he was actually referring to. And I was impressed. He was actually bringing Hasidism up to date for contemporary people. And my estimation of him grew. But he wasn't my teacher, okay? The Kitzur. Zalman was closer to my teacher, but Zalman was too complicated and too busy translating and too busy... And it wasn't simple and deep. And I was looking for simple and deep. My, my soul, my neshama 
I think, instinctively wanted something simple and deep. And, and uh, yes, we should be able to talk about it uh, theoretically, but not too intellectual. Um, and so rather than go to India to look for a guru, I went to Israel to look for a spiritual master. Um, the night I flew out, I phoned up a girl, a Jewish girl who was in our... I had also studied Buddhist meditation after I kind of wound up my studies with Zalman. Zalman left Winnipeg, I stayed on. Wound up opening a spiritual bookstore there called Prairie Sky. Still going strong today with my old partner Grant running it. God bless him. Um, he was the Buddhist in the group. I wanted to call it Hardland, but he, he called it Prairie Sky. He was more Buddhist. I was more Jewish Sufi. All right, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway, this is before, before opening the bookstore. Um... I went to Israel to look for a spiritual master. And I phoned this girl from the Buddhist meditation group I'd been part of in Winnipeg. And she lived in the Bronx. I was flying out of my, my aunt and uncle's house in Queens near the airport. And she wasn't home. But they said, phone this other number. She'll, she'd love to hear from you. I called this other number. No, she's not there. They went to a party. But phone this other number. I phoned this other number. I wind up speaking to this guy. I say, where, where are you going? Who are you? I said, I'm from Winnipeg. Um, I don't remember her name. I'm her friend, you know. And I'm going to Israel. He said, oh, wow, cool, man. I just got back from there. Are you going for a particular reason? I said, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going to look for a spiritual master. Oh, totally. Like, I dig, man. Like, I totally respect. Um, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no, please. He said, do you know where to find one? I said, no, actually, I don't. But I'm trusting God and that I'll be guided and that's about it. He said, oh, look, I totally dig what you're saying. Do you mind if I make a suggestion? I said, no, please. He said, Maggie Levine on Rehova Grippus, I don't remember the number. In those days, nobody had phones, right? You had to wait a year to get a phone installed. Rehova Grippus uh, near the Shuk. Uh, she knows all the gurus in Israel. He gave me the address of this girl. Thank you. Thank you, God. Whoa. Okay. And I remember I had a journal book with me on the plane. And I wrote a poem as I was flying to Israel about the need to encounter the other side. Not in the Kabbalistic dark sense of the Sitra Achra, but in the Jungian sense of what's been rejected, what's been neglected, the need to confront the other side. I wasn't sure that was about Islam, but I think I already had an inkling that I, there was something cooking here. Uh, Maybe it could also be the ultra-Orthodox world that, as, as a conservative Jew, it had always been sort of pushed away. But it wasn't... It was something I knew I was... This need to confront the other side, that there was... I was going to find God, not by staying in the comfortable parameters of where I came from, but in going out, really encountering what was there in Eretz HaKodesh, in the Holy Land. So I get to Israel, I get to Jerusalem. Uh, I look up Maggie Levine. I sit down with she and her flatmate, two women. I tell them my whole life story until that point, my spiritual journey. And they come up with a short list, three names. The first is Reb Gedalia Koneg, Alava Shalom, beautiful, beautiful breast love teacher from the tradition of Rebna. And to make a long story short, I could expand it, but I'll make it short for this time, I think. Um, when we were learning a certain teaching, and I said this reminded me of... of, of, of uh, well, no, I can't make it too short. It won't come through. Uh, we're learning this text. Zehayom Hashem. This is the day God has made. You should put everything into your worship of God today and not say, I'm not in the mood today. I'll do it tomorrow. 
okay, easy to agree with, just about impossible to put into action, right? But not a lot to talk about. Okay, sure, you should do that. All right, fine. But I said this Indian of Hayomazet today, this reminds me in one of the deep teachings of Reb Nachman, he talks about how the whole creation exists within a void from which the infinite light of God has been withdrawn so that other than God can exist. God is holding itself back to allow other than God to exist. But yet it's there because of God. So this paradox of God not being there but being there can't really be grasped until ad latid lavo, until the future to come. I said, is this Indian, this matter of Hayom of today, is this the key to Atid Lavo, the future to come? He looked at me, and I really felt he, he got me. He understood what I was saying. He said, yes. I said, so if it's all a matter of be here now, what's the whole Indian of Mashiach? You know, why are we looking forward to the Messiah coming? He said, you're asking a very good question. But there's a problem. Your question is coming from the level of Torah HaTzadik, the teaching of the Tzadik. Yes, totally, that's why I'm here. The spiritual master, you got me. Yeah, right. So what's the problem? The problem is neither you nor I are Tzadikim. Whoa. He wants to tell me I'm not a Tzadik. I'd rather him tell me I'm a potential tzaddik, but he wants to tell me I'm not a tzaddik. All right, I understand. They got to beat up your ego a bit, you know. All right, it's part of the th- part of the thing. All right, let's go. Go ahead. But if he's telling me seriously that he's not a tzaddik, I can't stay and study with him. Now I felt David Zeller in his book uh, Meetings with Remarkable People later wrote about Reb Gedalia that he was the one Jewish teacher he met who had presence. I agree with that. Reb Gedalia had presence. He was there. He was a real person, and he could have been my teacher. But the answer he was giving me made it clear. He said, I'm not a tzaddik. You're looking for a tzaddik? I can't help you with that. I can help you understand about it, da 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 Okay, I'm out of here. Thank you. Thank you for hearing my question. Bye. I left. I didn't come back to Reb the second person on my list was the Zen Roshi from Japan, who then lived on the Mount of Olives. And the third person was this traditional Sufi Sheikh, whom, who's pretty traditional, but with your conservative background, that might not be a, so much a problem. And it seems like he's got a lot of power. I later understood the double meaning of that, with your conservative background, is not such a problem. A, with your conservative Jewish background, you appreciate tradition. You're not allergic to tradition. You like tradition. It's all true. B, with your conservative Jewish background, you've been inoculated against becoming infatuated with tradition. You're not going to become a slave to Jewish orthodoxy. You're not going to become a slave to Islamic orthodoxy. We can trust you to go there. Go in, try to get the teaching, see what happens to you, go go to the heart of the matter, learn what you need to know learn, go through the experience, and you're not going to come out a fanatical Muslim. We can trust you to do that. You've already strong enough with your handling of tradition. We can trust you to do that. That was the very, very implicit message that I more or less figured out over time, you know. Okay. Baruch Hashem. I appreciate that. Okay. So, I, I go to the Arab bus station, you know, this is 1976. 
It's only nine years after the Six-Day War. Israelis are not so used to going to the Arab world yet. It's before the Intifada. It's not really dangerous to go there, but it's just beginning. I take the bus. We go up the hill. The bus driver stops the bus when we get to the top of the Mount of Olives, turns on the radio, Arab music, orders tea. Cool, man. We're in the Middle East. We're in no hurry. Great. Hey, I'm, I'm on for the ride, you know. All right, what's next? He goes up to the northern side of the Mount of Olives, which is... The northern kind of part of the U is the more secular part. The southern is the more religious. And that's where the Zen, the Zen Roshi and his community have their center. And I find the address, and I knock on the door. And I knock on the door, and there's nobody home. I say, oh, how appropriate for Zen Buddhism. There's nobody home. Well... I don't think I came all the way to Israel to study with a traditional Zen Roshi. I already did very, very traditional Vipassana meditation. drove me crazy. Uh, never suffered like I suffered there. Did not solve the problem of suffering, but I learned a lot about myself. and learned about spirituality in a whole new way that I very much appreciate. Been there, done that, I think. Let's check out the Sheikh. And I go around asking for Sheikh Muhammad, not realizing that every second man on the Mount of Olives is, is named Muhammad. And there are more than one sheikhs around. I meet a Christian woman with a kind of blonde ponytail and a little bit of gray in her hair. I was impressed, you know, kind of had some experience of the road. It felt, you know, under her belt. She says, you're looking for Sheikh Muhammad? I said, that's right. She said, you're Jewish, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. She said, don't look for Sheikh Muhammad. You have it in your own tradition." Of course, I didn't, I didn't follow what she said. I was relieved she wasn't trying to convert me to Christianity. But years later, when I was struggling with my dual Islamic Sufi Jewish identity, I appreciated the compassion in her warning, although it didn't help. Okay. I finally got to the right house. There had been a community from the Lama Foundation in New Mexico that had visited that sheikh the year before. Uh, so they were kind of used to... Americans there on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and he had a couple of women students, Westerners, who made me very welcome, made me a cup of tea. Uh, there were two books. I had to wait a few hours to meet him. There were two books on the shelf. One was called A Sufi Saint of the 20th Century. And there was a chapter there about the oneness of being, expressing something I knew from Mahayana Buddhism in very monotheistic language relating to the oneness of being in terms of relationship to God, that really fit for me. Oh, if that's what the teaching is about, um, um, this, this sounds good. And there was another book by the Western Sufi master Pirvalayat Khan, a Pilgrim's Guide to Planet Earth. And he said, when you visit a teacher of the East, in the East, don't try to teach, don't be so full of what you already know. Open yourself, humble yourself so you can learn something. Just one thing. If you understand the unity of religions, that all religions, all paths are going to the same place, and no religion is superior to another, and you meet somebody who teaches you otherwise, you don't need to go there. Hold fast to what you understand. Very interesting Simanim Baderach, little road signs on the way. Okay, thank you God for all these signals. That evening the Sheikh walks in. And I was picturing, I was looking for someone like, like that Lillian picture of uh, Abraham, Avram Avinu, Semitic looking nose, long beard, you know, this kind of Arab Jewish looking guy, you know. 
And this guy walks in, he looks more like a sumi wrestler. He's kind of chunky. He's got red hair. He's got a short beard, short hair. And kind of, uh, kind of impressive, slightly scary kind of presence or something. And he takes out, I don't know if you guys remember mimeograph before we had, uh, you know, before we had uh, photocopying, before we had Xerox. He gives me this blue mimeograph page, The Knowledge of the Sufi Path. And he says, Beloved, can you read this? And I take it, and I think, oh, great, a dramatic reading. I was very into theater. Now, Rumi, who I discovered mostly later, Rumi has this, this line, let the text read you. And that's what happened. I read this thing, and I wasn't reading it. It was coming through me. It was using me. I was the channel for it. It opened, Beloved, in the name of God, look with the eye of your heart, and don't look back. Then you will hear with the ear of God and see with the eye of God. And when you come to that ayin, said in parentheses, ayin, spring, holy mackerel. Arabic is like Hebrew. Ayin means your eye. Ayin is also ma'ayan, a well, a spring. They're doing the same thing that the Hasidic teachers do. We're using the double meaning of the word. When you come to that spring, you will be at the source of all the waters that all the lovers are searching about. And when you come to that that sort of orders you must take off your shoes as Moses does present tense when he speaks with his Lord and when I speak of shoes I mean the world the dunya and the nafs the ego and the shaitan the, the devil and then leave all that beside and then you will be facing him as he is facing you you are one of his children you are like the camels who have been wandering so long in the desert and are so thirsty when you come to this water then drink and drink and drink until you are quenched I felt like I was at the source of the common Semitic mysticism, common to Jews and Muslims, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, shepherd analogy, yeah, which is talking about the eye within, the, 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 the opening within, the source of love within ourselves, that that's where we find God. Um, this fits. This is, this is what I'm looking for. Um, one of the t- I, I came to visit city three times. Each time I picked up a Jewish guy who was wandering around on the way. And he sort of, my companion, maybe twice I came with a companion, sort of voiced all of what might have been my Jewish kind of reservations. But what about this? What about that? So I sort of felt like, shut up. Just listen. Hey, like, come on. Let the guy, you know. They said, come back, but next time come alone. Come alone. Okay. Makes sense. I came and he... St- Sidi was talking about it is not enough to want to serve God you must be able to distinguish the place of the servant and the place of God within yourself this really made sense to me and the words jumped out of my mouth but I want to serve God Sidi said yes beloved but the order not come order idhen in Arabic the permission the divine permission his, his English was very simple but like Hasidic Hebrew it was simple but it went deep um, which I've been studying with Red Zalman, you know, except I know English better than Hebrew, so that works for me. Um, okay, did I say I wanted to be your student? Achee. Uh, uh, I came back once more. He wor- welcomes me very warmly, this time without a companion. He welcomes me warmly. He says, Beloved, the order has come. You can come and you can stay and you can walk station after station to be complete and more complete 
if you like. Whoa, what do we do with this? I was looking at the unknown. I didn't know what I was getting into. I said yes. I'm not gonna say no. He's asking me for what I'm looking for. I wanna find God. You know, I wanted to find God with Buddhism, which doesn't even exactly fit. They don't talk about God, but you know, the divine realization. All right, blah, blah, blah. This is about this is about prayer, this is about the heart, this is about love, this is prayer, this is the prophets, this is it's it's a work, it's a bit of a stretch, but it's also, yeah, this I said yes. Now, I had met Sufi Order Sufis, Sufi Order of the West people in in America before that. And it seemed a little too idealistic for my taste. I wanted something more grounded. Uh, and I appreciated prostration. I actually discovered prostration myself in my Vipassana retreat. That's another story, but I'll just say prostration was something I already had a relationship to from my own experience. And here was prostration in a monotheistic context. Um, we have Muhammad not as an intermediary, not as, you know, like going to God through Jesus, but as a model for going to God, but it was about going within oneself, uh, praying as Muhammad prays so as to connect directly with God, with prostration, which made a lot of sense to me. Um, So I became somebody, I endeavored to practice Islamic prayer five times a day, six days a week, and decided that on Shabbat I would pray in Hebrew three times as I was doing before that. I gave up putting on Talos and Tefillin. I wasn't that strong by that point anyway on doing that. I did Islamic prayer. I considered praying eight times a day, but then I said, I'm not that holy. I'm still I'm still looking at the women. Uh, eight times a day would be an exaggeration. Uh, yes, you need a basic structure for the spiritual work. I understand from a psychology of religion approach that I got from Reb Zalman, the efficacy of five times a day prostration prayer it fit me better in some ways than mindfulness meditation. Um, and in Shabbat, I'll pray in Hebrew. One God, right? Let's put it to the test. It's not about converting, right? It's about God. Uh, I think, I hope. Sidi uh, would say, if, if anybody knows their religion well, there will be one religion, the religion of the love and the peace. So I found in that, okay, so maybe he supports me in bringing that understanding to Judaism. I'm willing to apprentice with Islamic practice. I don't have a problem with that. But um, over the years, it became more and more of an issue and more and more difficult. That first summer, I was writing descriptions of the stations of the Sufi path and experiencing much of what I was writing as I wrote it. Sidi would come and ask us questions, you know, ask us if we had questions. And once I asked Sidi a question, and it opened a whole new teaching. And of course, everything's been recorded on the cassette recorder. And I said, whoa, spiritual teaching really comes from people. I mean, I'm sure sitting with the Hasidic masters must have been similar. It comes from people. It doesn't come from books. Because with Solomon, still we were getting it from the books. Basically, we're talking about what's in the books. It comes from people. The books are the after effect. It's ironic because I've, I've, I've continued to be a bookseller in my vocation, my way of kind of uh, 
a little bit counseling people from various points of view where they're looking for spiritually by being a bookseller but but uh, I really had a very strong experience there it's not about the books the books are about the people people experience God first then it goes in the book and the Jewish person I was with the the conditioning I had that was a very profound realization both comforting and, and upsetting deep important um, and I was sitting with somebody who really spoke words that were gems that belonged in books and there are some books of Sidi Sheikh Mohammed sitting in the Sufi section of my store um, they're not the most useful books in the end I think because they are very concerned with his charisma and with the Islamic framework um, but there you go. They're worth making books out of. Okay. So I continued with CD for seven years. It became more and more of a struggle rather than less and less. Uh, when I would go to CD and try to say, hey, look, bottom line, tachlis, I'm Jewish. Just tell me, can I be your student or not? You know? Uh, he would take me to... And he would use this language. He would take me to the world of the unity. Only he stuttered a little, so it came out the world of the immunity, the immunity, where everything dissolves into oneness. Everything dissolves into love. And then he'd look at me and say, yes, beloved, what was your question? And of course, from that place, which I couldn't help but experience around his magnetic presence, there were no more questions. But actually here I had some good fortune in having first studied with Reb Zalman because Reb Zalman gave us some vocabulary Reb Zalman would talk about talking tachlis, down to earth, bottom line tachlis, and I realized Sidi would not allow me to talk tachlis he'd take control of the energetic field of the space and you couldn't talk tachlis it was all love, it was all oneness, okay but fine, in the place of oneness there are no questions I get it Beautiful. I know that place. Thank you for showing me that place. But there's another place I also have to live in this world. And in that place, can I be your student and be Jewish? Just please tell me. I'm not allergic to Islamic prayer. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not allergic to fasting and Ramadan as a spiritual practice, the same way I do Buddhist meditation. But my Buddhist teacher didn't try to convert me. Are you trying to convert me? Can I be Jewish and be your student? I could never have that conversation with him. And it was more and more distressing. I had some good friends, a friend named Kabir Helminski, an important, just published a book called Holistic Islam, uh, Mevlevi Sufi teacher in the tradition of Rumi. And Kabir invited me, next time I was in Israel, to come meet him in Istanbul and meet some sheikhs and some real dervishes. And I, I got that, to be a dervish is not just a matter of signing up and being somebody's student. It requires a lot of requires something special from a person and I flew and I asked Sidi to release me I said maybe I will find the right sheikh there in Turkey would you release me because I understood it's a marriage he spoke of it as a marriage the relationship of the master and the disciple and it not only binds me it also binds him and it's not fair to keep him bound if I'm looking elsewhere you gotta let your partner know you're shopping around you might sleep with somebody else you know you gotta you know come on so I let him know I was shopping around you know I didn't know what was going to come of this he said you are free beloved you can go you can look and you can come back now on the one hand that was very generous on the other hand I felt him 
hanging on to me with both hands with full strength. But then I said to myself, hey, it's not my problem. It's his problem. If he's holding on, I've served notice. So I went to Turkey and I was very impressed with the world of Turkish Sufism that I encountered there. I went to the Helvetti Mevlevis, Helvetti Jirahi Dervishes for their zikr. They serve a little meal beforehand. And although most people don't speak English, I met a dervish who speaks English. He said, are you a Sufi? I said, I didn't know what to say. I said, inshallah. He said, oh, what tariqat, what Sufi order? I said, shaduli. He said, shazuli. Very high. Wow. He's respecting me as a fellow dervish and not trying to convert me to his path. Hey, I, I like this kind of Sufism. This is, wow, this is what I'm looking for. Not that I'm looking to be Helvetti Jirahi, but I feel okay with Turkish Sufis. It's, it's not this, this, this thing, this come on thing of, you know, being very hospitable and then trying to suck you in. Altogether, Turkish culture is a little different from Arab culture that way. Arabs are very lavishly hospitable, but there's often a hook. There's often an expectation. With the Turks, they're generous without a hook. They're actually pleased if they've been of service to you, deeply pleased, and leave it at that. And this was my first taste of Turkish Sufism. I met some wonderful people. I met Suleyman Deri, the Mevlevi Sheikh. I didn't feel myself a follower of Rumi. I didn't feel myself Mevlevi. He had one, he didn't speak much English, but one expression that came out of his mind out of his mind, out of his mouth, excuse me. Completion, not conversion. Yes, please. This is what I'm in Sufism for. I'm looking for completion. I'm not looking to convert. There was something that I came to understand, a very important theme, both for Turkish culture and for Israeli culture, about secularism and religion. And many of the Sufis I met in Turkey were more secular than religious and actually, in a certain way, attached to and flaunting secularism in a way that I wasn't 100% comfortable with, but bottom line, it left me space, some space for my Judaism, and that's what I needed in a Sufi context. I wasn't in a competition between the two religions, and I needed a break from that while continuing in Sufism. Now, Kabir himself published a book called Open Secret. At that time, we're talking 1984, seven years after I signed on with the Sheikh. And I read these Rumi versions by Coleman Barks, and I said, yeah, this is the kind of Sufism I want to continue with. This, this sounds right. Rumi, cool. And then uh, I also saw a TV program, first time I was in Turkey, of Ashik Vesel, the guy who kept the dervish folk tradition of Turkey going in the 20th century. This old cracksy kind of voice, but something there attracted me. It would become more and more important to me as time went on. And I discovered the poet who initiated that whole folk tradition in the time of Rumi, the generation of Rumi's sons, probably knew and was influenced by Rumi, but wrote in Turkish, not in Persian. His name is Yunus Emre. I love the guy. So what for you is the essence of Sufism? Well, I appreciate that question. <laughs> Very much. Um, it's possible to answer it, you know. 
if we're asking about the essence of Judaism, I suppose we'd have to talk about the giving of the Torah on the Mount, on Mount Sinai. And uh, that's the key metaphor in Judaism. Um, did it really happen? How invested am I in, in it as an historical event, as an article of faith? You know, I'm happy with it as a metaphor. Let's leave it at that, okay? But if I was on another planet, it's not something I could carry with me. In the Sufi tradition, there are, are, are sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, hadith, which are not in the Quran, which are additional sayings. And there are hadith Qudsi, there are sacred sayings, sayings in which Muhammad is quoting God. And there is a hadith which I've heard quoted both from my first sheikh and then from the very secular Sufi teacher that I discovered, not in Turkey, but coming out of the Turkish tradition I discovered in Canada, Murat Yegin. Uh, they both quote the same quote, the same hadith, coming, quoting God in the mouth of the Prophet Muhammad, where God says, I was a hidden treasure that yearned to be known, and I created the world that I might be known. Neither my seven heavens nor my seven earths contain me, but the heart of my faithful believer contains me. Okay, this for me expresses the essence of my spiritual understanding. It crystallizes it much better than the Buddhist theory of suffering and overcoming suffering. It crystallizes it better than uh, talking about the revelation of the Torah on Mount Sinai. This goes really deep. This is really basic. We begin with God before creation. All of creation is an expression of this divine wish to unfold itself, to know itself, to express itself, to be known. And although God is expressed in all of nature, in all of creation, it comes to really, it has the capacity to really come to know itself, to meet itself, to grasp what there is, who it is, in the heart of the human being. That's what we're made for. That's what this whole thing is set up for. It's an anthropocentric model. It puts the human being at the center, not as a ruler, as a servant, as I understand it, but it puts the human being at the center because we're the place where God can know God. Uh, the trees are beautiful. They're profound, but they're limited. The flowers, the water, the birds, the stars, it's in the human heart that the whole thing can come back to itself. So this satisfies me. This speaks to me. Um, and this has nourished me. And so I went into another kind of Sufi training with Murat Yagan, who came very much out of the, the Turkish Sufi tradition, was, was trained by Bektashi dervishes, who were kind of self-consciously heretical dervishes, who pride themselves in drinking alcohol and... Uh, Men and women meet in their meetings and have conversation and even do music and and uh, spiritual folk dances together. I mean, really scandalous things for our Western culture. But in the Islamic world, it is pretty scandalous, drinking alcohol and men and women socializing. Bektashis, it's normal. Um, and more important than that, somebody who really knew North America, the Western mentality, was giving an essential Sufism that in some way was kind of objective, sort of like a Gurdjieff teaching, uh, scientific, and yet also with heart, with passion, with love, 
with prayer, uh, but also with an intellectual clarity, what do we mean about God? And this was a good teaching for me, and a teaching which made sense as something that could be of service to Christians and to Jews, both those who are far from their traditions, their, their native religious traditions, and those who have a connection to them to more deeply understand what is God, what is prayer, what is the love of God all about. So uh, for many years I was Murat's student and uh, led a group in Winnipeg, opened my bookstore. Well, that was already when I was back with CD. I opened a bookstore there. Um, in some ways stayed with my first love, this, this idea of the tzaddik, the spiritual master within and wrote my MA thesis in Canada about that. But as part of my research, discovered this scholar, Moshe Idel, great Kabbalah scholar, and that drew me to, to Jerusalem. So having gone pretty deeply into Sufism, I also wanted to, to see the parallels in Judaism. Uh, working on my MA on the idea of the tzaddik as an archetype, uh, and kind of the background of what I discovered in, in Reb Nachman, how, it, how it's expressed earlier in Hasidism and in Kabbalah, and even how it grows out of Rabbinic Judaism. Um, I realized that the guy to study with was Moshe Idel, that he was somebody who was looking at Jewish mysticism not just as a product of Gnosticism or non-Jewish influences of one sort or another, but was also looking at the organic development of spiritual ideas within the Jewish tradition and uh, seemed like he had a pretty objective and deep understanding of things and I came to Israel it was a challenge studying in Hebrew studying these deep things in Hebrew but uh, I uh, started going to lectures at Hebrew University um, and uh, never got my PhD but uh, did some years of study surrounding and adding on to my MA from Canada. And, uh, but after being here for seven years, there was kind of a question of, all right, what am I going to do when I grow up? And hit on the idea of, oh, I had a spiritual bookstore in Canada. Maybe Jerusalem needs the same thing. Um, I kind of know how to do that. A place... There were spiritual bookstores in Israel at that time. They were very kind of new age with a little bit of Buddhism and yoga, but um, they didn't have Jewish books. So in looking at uh, creating a bookstore in Israel, it was clear to me that Judaism would be important. Uh, needed to have a good Jewish section. It should also have a good Sufi section, both to help Israelis understand the culture of our Arab neighbors to understand Islam, but also because Sufism is naturally kind of a bridge between Buddhism and yoga and Eastern spirituality and Judaism. It's monotheistic. It's about God. It's about the prophets, but it's not in the, the territory of, of Orthodox Judaism. And uh, I understood that, that would be important. And of course, Eastern religion and yes, New Age, um, now, looking around my store today, it's very interesting what there is. My New Age section, more than half the books are in Hebrew. A great deal of literature has been produced in Hebrew. There's a lot of interest in Israel over the years. New Age has gone down in Israel in recent years. There's less interest than there used to be. That's a story within itself. But uh, there certainly is lots of literature in Hebrew. The Jewish section, 
is mostly in English because books that bridge religious and secular, bridge Sephardic and, and Ashkenazic, bridge different communities and look at spiritual questions in ways that are kind of free from the misgeret, from the framework of this kind of religious stance or that kind of religious stance, those kind of books are mostly being produced in America. I have books by Yitzhak Ginsburg. Some, some customers get very upset because of his right-wing politics, but at least he's an Israeli author who's writing, who's thinking originally and writing Israeli original books of Jewish mysticism. There aren't many Israeli authors doing that. One very useful book I found is Danny Matt's book, uh, The Essential Kabbalah, which gives you direct access to a variety of Jewish sources, lets you make your own journey, like as I was growing up reading Buber's Hasidic Tales, you make your own relationship with the different sources, see what speaks to you. And I got tired of apologizing to my Israeli customers. There's a great book giving you access to Kabbalah, but it's only in English. That's ridiculous. Why should The book has been translated to six languages, including Croatian, for heaven's sake, and it doesn't exist in Hebrew. Now, I knew Danny Man. I slept on his couch when I first dropped out of college and was making the rounds of visiting friends at college campuses, we're old, old friends. I said, did you ever think of, of doing the Essential Kabbalah in Hebrew? He said, I would love to do that. Do you want to publish it? I said, yes, that's why I'm calling you. And he fully collaborated and helped us with getting that book out. God bless him. And Leva Kabbalah is one of the books I published. The first book I published was a translation of Rumi, a diwan, uh, the, from the Diwani Shamsi Tabriz, the, the collection of the poems of Shems, which are really not by his friend Shems. They're inspired by Shems. They're Rumi's ecstatic poetry. And uh, a fellow named uh, Alex, Alexander Fagan came into my store, and he had been working on translations of Rumi from Persian. The guy's a bit of a genius. Those were in his days of Choser uh, B'Sheilav, kind of... Uh, exploring things outside Judaism. Today he's a Rosh Hashiva in Moscow. He's moved away from that again. But I was very lucky to get his Hebrew translations of uh, Rumi from Persian as well as from English. Uh, and then later went on to my favorite, the guy that Murad introduced me to, the great Turkish poet in the footsteps of Rumi, but with the chutzpah, the directness, the candor, the simplicity of Turkey rather than Persia, Yunus Emre, and we've done Dervish Yunus in Hebrew, Dervish Yunus in English. So this is the stuff I've been, been doing, a bit of publishing as well as selling books. So what do you feel is the situation with religion today here in Jerusalem? Okay. I've noticed Israel, in some ways similarly Turkey, there's this polarization between secular and religious. You know, when I first came to Israel, friends encouraged me to phone up this girl. They said she's very spiritual. You should ask her, you know, ask her out. Uh, I phone up this girl, and she says to me in Hebrew, she says, are you religious? <laughs> I try to give her a short answer. Uh, Shabbat is important for me. I sometimes turn on electricity on Shabbat. I like to have Shabbat meals. She listens very patiently for five minutes. She says, oh, so you are religious. Too bad, because I'm not. Like, end of conversation. Like, there are two camps. And we don't intermarry. We have religious and secular. And I'm in a bad shape because I'm not orthodox. I'm not quite fit the religious mold either. I'm somewhere in between in this whole Sufi thing. But I'm definitely not secular. Part of my vision with the bookstore is, in my own small way, to encourage people to cross boundaries to explore. So if a guy comes in with a knitted kippah, meaning he's national religious, Zionist religious, modern religious, and I can introduce him to Rumi, 
somebody else who's obviously secular and I can introduce him to Leva Kabbalah or to another uh, spiritual book about Judaism that isn't pushing religion on him. Open doors to open people's minds and help people find whatever they're looking for. Uh, now, things have f fermented beautifully since I came to Israel. When I came to here to Israel, my friend Levi Kelman from Hebrew Summer Camp, from Camp Ramah, had started Kol Hanashama, a reform congregation where people actually loved to pray. That was revolutionary. Uh, loving to pray, and he communicated that to his congregation in a reform framework rather than an orthodox framework with a little Arabic prayer for peace and Reb Nachman's prayer for peace in Hebrew at the end of every service. Man, that felt great. That was the first of many, many alternative congregations, in, particularly in this area in the south end of Jerusalem. There are several alternative orthodox congregations that try to give as much equality to women alongside men and all that. It doesn't turn me on as much, but that's here too. But there are some very creative places, Navatihila, Rabbi Ruth Kagan and Michael Kagan, old friends of mine, were students of Reb Zalman in the 90s. I was with them in the 70s. And when they came back, everybody, at least I expected, Michael would be the rabbi. Ruth came back the rabbi. But she's a native Israeli. She knows Hebrew. She, she, she's in the culture. Michael still is an active participant and doing workshops and things. But, but Ruth is leading a very energetically... Um, not just original music and all that, which they do, but energetically, I can connect there spiritually a way I don't connect in other places. Uh, there's Tzion, which is bridging Sephardic and Ashkenazic, is bridging mystical and social action kind of agendas. Also a woman rabbi, also a place I feel comfortable. Um, it's wonderful. There's more than one shul where I'm comfortable, where I feel who I am contributes rather than being strange to the place. I've sometimes considered moving up north. My parents my parents founded a conservative synagogue in Sfat. That's a whole other story from 76 to about the year 2000. And I would visit them there often. And I have good friends in Rosh Pina, and I've given workshops there. But Rosh Pina is secular. Sfat is becoming more and more and more religious. That Israeli schizophrenia, I'd be a little crazy between the two places because I'm too religious maybe for Rosh Pina and too secular probably for Tzfat. In religion, I'm one more crazy guy who's doing his own thing, uh, Baruch Hashem, among all these other crazy people who are also exploring and being original, and it's okay. So I'm grateful for the pluralism of Jerusalem. I don't know if it's that well known about, but it's really one of the great things of Jerusalem is there are a lot of spiritual options here, uh, options within orthodoxy and options outside of orthodoxy. And people who are exploring, if they have the courage to do their exploring and growing and trying things on and sharing with others, they can do it here. And it's great. Your store, Olam Katan, it's been uh, just off Emek now for how long? For seven years. For 13 years before that, I was on the street next door. Uh, it's been a struggle to maintain a bookstore, a spiritual bookstore and music store musical CDs more and more young people come in they don't have CD players oh my gosh I think you're one of them if I'm not mistaken um, I tell them go downtown and get a CD player it's not a big deal it's not you know uh, there's so much important music from Israel from Turkey again most of my spiritual Jewish books are in English but Israel is producing incredible spiritual music that crosses the boundaries between religious 
and secular between uh, Oriental and Western Sephardic Ashkenazic. Um, the doors are wide open in the world of Israeli music, and it's on, on CDs. Um, it's very difficult making a living selling books and CDs more and more in our times. Um, the book is an important place. I feel it's a, it's a way station for all kinds of seekers. That's how I see it. Um, I had support from my family in the past. That's gone now. My parents are long gone, other relatives. Um, and uh, it is a question mark to the continuation of the store. Um, uh, there's a prospect I just heard about today. God willing, I'll find a way, I'll find a little corner to continue to offer things, uh, but it's not certain right now. We may be looking at the closing of Olam Katan. I'm not sure. I myself, I know I have books to write. I have my English book of Yunus Emre that I published here in Israel. I need to publish abroad. I have books on Reb Nachman, a book on, in general on the idea of the tzaddik, not an academic language, but an accessible book, a book on the creative role of controversy in the Sufi tradition, the struggle between the followers of Rumi and this, the follow the Bektashi dervishes following Yunus Emre, who learned how to laugh at each other in their storytelling instead of being really hostile to each other. A very good model. Uh, maybe my own spiritual life story, some of which I've been sharing here in this talk. Uh, and also the, the Yiddish poetry of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Because I've been looking for Hasidic poetry. Hasidism is really the, the development of Judaism that's closest in spirit to Sufism, that has that simplicity, that has that heart. Uh, I love much of Kabbalah, but it can be very, very abstract and philosophical. And Hasidism is much more down-to-earth, like Sufism, and it has music, and it has dance, and the relationship to the teacher, and the circle of disciples. But it didn't produce poetry. Uh, we produced uh, spiritual poetry early on, early in the Middle Ages, Ibn Gavirol and others, but it doesn't quite, their poetry doesn't quite do for me what Rumi and Yunus Emre, the great Sufi poets, do for me. Uh, Heschel does. And uh, my teacher Reb Zalman published his versions of, of Heschel, but they're, they're kind of too flowery. There's been another translation, but I feel like kind of the muscles I've been developing translating Yunus Emre, I'm also using the same thing of sticking very close to the original words so as to convey the spirit of the guy but in very direct and simple English. Um, and so I have my own book projects. Uh, I'd love to continue the store and have a place to share what I'm producing um, and a place to encounter people and feed them spiritually and be able to progress in these projects. But I've been too much absorbed in just trying to survive the last year or two. So uh, it's an interesting time of transition. We'll see where it goes. And if people want to come uh, by the store at some point over the next few weeks, either to um, grab a one last book or to revitalize the store, where or grab a lot of books at a discount sounds good to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm here um, probably through October, not for sure, not not definitely. Um, but yes, come as soon as you can and uh, keep in touch and uh, hopefully I'll have a place for you to come. Great. And just a, just a note from someone who's been lost a bunch of times. You go to the corner of Emek and Avishai, is that correct? Right. The lane is called Avishai. I don't usually use it. But it's not that well known. But it's between the, the, the lane is between 52 Emek Rafaim, which was where my store used to be, and 54, which is now it's an empty restaurant and, and the, the waffle bar. 
between the two is the lane, and you go down the lane, there's a sign, points you at Olam Katan, it says in Hebrew, spiritual books and music, it says in English, uh, you follow the finger, and you're here, and I'm open from 12 to 7 every day, 10 to 2 before Shabbat and holidays. Simple. Simple. <laughs> Thank you very much, Yaakov. You're very welcome, it was a pleasure. Thank you. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. going to sing the Song of the Prophets. The refrain, of course, is La ilaha illallah. There is no God but the God, but capital G God, so to speak. Um, we begin with Ibrahim Khalil Allah. Abraham is the container of God, or the one who contains or is contained by God. Musa Kalim Allah. Moses is the pen of God, the pen with which God writes. Dawood Wadud Allah. David is the beloved of God. Isa Ruhala. Jesus is the spirit of God. Never mind uh, Christian theology. Jesus is the spirit of God. Muhammad Rasul Allah. Muhammad is the messenger of God. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, Ibrahim Khalilallah, la ilaha illallah, Ibrahim Khalilallah, la ilaha illallah. Ya Musa Kalimallah, la ilaha Ya Musa Kalimallah, la ilaha la ilaha la ilaha Wadudallah, la ilaha Wadud Allah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha Ruh Allah, la ilaha illallah, ya Isa. Ruh Allah, 
Muhammad Rasulullah La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah La ilaha illallah La ilaha illallah Ibrahim Khalilallah Ibrahim Ya Musa Allah.